Hi everyone, this is Ben Guest, and today's interview is with Andres Alvarez. This is Dre's second time on the podcast. He came on very early in my podcasting career. Dre can be found on Twitter at NerdNumbers, and he has a great email newsletter, which you can find at nerdnumbers.substack.com. That's nerdnumbers.substack.com. In this conversation, Dre and I do a deep dive into Ted Lasso, what makes a good coach, what makes a good teacher. Dre and I have talked off air about coaching and teaching and effective practices for both. And for my Substack newsletter, which you can find at benbow.substack.com, I recently wrote a piece about my thoughts on Ted Lasso and how he compared to coaches like Bob Knight and Mike Krzyzewski coaches who I'd attended a coaching clinic with years ago. So that's where the conversation starts. It's a feel-good story in that you have this coach. He comes in in, I think, the second or third episode, tells the tells a reporter, I'm not interested in winning or losing. And he's just really, really positive. Now we're going to get to the question of if that's a fault. Um, I'm, I'm hoping we'll, 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 we'll hamper down that way a little. But just this coach that goes in, and when you talk about it, you said, you know, you went to a Coach Krasinski, Coach K, the the pinnacle, right? That's, if, if you're going to name coaches, it, especially in basketball, right, he's going to be one of the top three or four names that pops up, right? You're probably going to get like Orabach, Jackson, Coach K, if you're talking men's basketball, those those three. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you get Don Nelson. I'm trying to think any any other names that might. Bob, Bob Knight, Dean Smith. You know, sort of the cult of coach personality is much bigger in, in college than the pros. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, I think pros, you probably have Nelson, Jackson, Popovich. And then you, yep. you would probably argue that Popovich, which we might get to, is probably kind of like a player GM. But, you know, you, you said you get this coach and he's a screamer and intense fury. And, you know, you mess up, you run laps. Your Scott Williams interview brought that up because he talked about that in college, right? You mess up the next day, you're running laps at practice. And you, you kind of said you were used to that. And I never really got that as a mentality as a teacher or any, any type of management, but it, it is a fascinating point in managing humans of being angry and being mean, being this brusque coach, you follow what I do. If you don't, you run laps. Like I said, miracle. It's one reason I don't know if I like her Brooks, right? One of the pinnacle moments in the movie is when he has his team just running themselves to death after an exhibition loss and it's, you know, get him next time. Um, so I'm really curious your views on Lasso coming from that. Cause you basically said you started as a coach K and you maybe ended more of a Lasso in terms of how you viewed the game and what you want to get out of it. hundred percent. So let's like, let's go back to that specific example, right? Running laps, you guys messed up, the team messed up. So now there's going to be a physical punishment. When you just say it like that, what fucking sense does that make? That's so stupid, right? But it's the model of coaching that's celebrated, that that we're taught, and that players play under, and those players obviously then become coaches, and that's what was modeled for them. So in the Ted Lasso article, I talked about two different coaching clinics I went to. I went to a clinic at Texas Tech by Bob Knight, and it was his first year at Texas Tech after having been fired from Indiana. And so I really got to see like literally maybe the third and fourth and fifth days of practice with a new team who didn't know Coach Knight's system. And I got to see what a phenomenal teacher 
Coach Knight was, how there was never a wasted second in practice. And I took that lesson with me for the rest of my life. I always prided myself on our practices. Everybody was always doing something. And I got to see what a colossal fucking asshole Bob Knight was <laughs> and how he treated his players, his student managers, his assistant coaches, the women's coach, everybody like shit. It was all about him. And it was all about him exerting his will and exerting his control over his environment. So I'll give you an example. There was a, a player, a senior on the team, I think the, the starting point guard, and did something Coach Knight didn't like. And Coach Knight just slapped him on the back of the head. And this is in 2002. So that's when I knew, you know, if Coach Knight, who had just been fired from Indiana for um, choking a player, grabbing another student by the arm, if this is Coach Knight in 2002, after all that's happened, what was Coach Knight in 1982 like? I'm sure he was, you know, physically putting his hands on players left and right. And that was certainly borne out in the video of him choking um, one of his players at Indiana, Neil Reed. So that was the first coaching clinic. The second one I went to was the following year for Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski at Duke. And Coach K had played at West Point for Coach Knight. Now, Mike Krzyzewski was not disrespectful in any way that I saw to the student managers, to his staff, et cetera. But it was the same exerting control over the team. And so the team messed up, you know, did something, I forget what it was. And so Coach K was like, everybody's coming back at midnight to run laps or run sprints or do whatever. So that's the type of coaching that's modeled for us. But do you perform at your best? I mean, regardless of just the ethics of um, I'm in charge of this group of young people, if we just leave that aside, which is the much more important issue, do you perform at your best when um, you're under the constant threat of stress and punishment and fear? Or do you perform at your best when you feel confident, prepared, and relaxed? And I think the answer is self-obvious. And so our job as a coach, as a teacher, whatever, is to create an environment where people feel prepared and relaxed at the same time. I know um, on our first podcast, we, we briefly talked Josh Waitzkin, and he talks a lot about this. It's funny because he brings it up in chess, where what he notes is he's a chess player, right? And chess is all about concentration. And what he noted that he had to get over was, I didn't realize this was a big deal in chess, but like certain opponents are very good at psyching out their other opponents. So one thing that you can do, I'm not, you as a coach of, of young talent, cannot be shocked by hearing this, but like chess players would kick each other. You know, the, the, the unscrupulous ones would like kick the other one under the leg or intentionally make noise or, you know, do, do things to get in the other person's head. At the top level, Gary Kasparov uh, was notorious for stuff like he would slam the clock and make noise. And, you know, in theory, you're supposed to have referees, moderators that come and say behave, but like all sports, right? You, you get, you get a big enough diva, you get someone that's important enough they're allowed to get away with bad behavior because you know you're not you don't want to be the person who fouls out LeBron James. So so that kind of stuff. In his book he talks a lot about that kind of thing is like trying to get someone in the headspace that's not just the flow state. You and I have talked that. I know you ask a lot of your author uh, guests about flow and how you get yourself in the right state of mind. But his point to that is also you have to be able to get in and out of flow state at a reasonably quick speed because you get into flow state, you're, you're, you're going lights out from the game, and then you get 
fouled hard back on the head. I'm talking basketball. Now the ref doesn't call anything. You're upset. You go to the line, you miss both free throws. Cause you're really upset. Why didn't you call that foul? Now you're down by one refs. They're, they're robbing the game from us. Maybe you yell at the ref, you get teed up, you get kicked out of the game. It's like, you have to be able to go back. And a lot of what you're saying, like a lot of good coaching is getting to that. I don't know. I Scott Williams seemed to indicate that Phil Jackson was, was good, which was interesting. I'm very curious about that. But I mean, I remember Phil Jackson, that was kind of his point is he's like the Zen master game time. I want you guys to be able to handle this. You, you, you can't have the coach calling the trick plays or calling timeout or yelling at you when it's game time, it's game time. And a lot of the people that I respect in terms of coaching basically say the same, the analytics bear the same thing out. Like game time coaching just is not as effective as getting your team prepared for game time. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and I, I want to dive into that, but before that, to go back to the previous point and, and your example of chess players psyching each other out, the biggest lie, one of the biggest lies we've, we've been told as a society, as coaches, as athletes, as players, is that playing from a place of anger improves performance and that's total bullshit playing from a place of anger hinders performance that's why the the for the examples you gave of chess players they're trying to psych each other out by making the other person angry and emotional and we do not perform better at any task when we're coming from a place of anger so that's like the big incredible hulk lie right that you're going to get angry and have super strength or super quickness or super three-point shooting ability um, now we can all pinpoint examples where we've gotten mad and that's motivated us. But long-term anger and fear are terrible states to be in when you're trying to perform anything. Um, as far as the the idea of um, in-game coaching, that like... Ooh, that's interesting. Do you want to draw up a play at the end of a game that the team has never seen before? I mean, that's that, that's craziness, right? Like you, whatever you're doing in the game, ideally is something you've already practiced a million times uh, behind closed doors. So why would you want to do something brand new at the most pressure-packed moment of a sporting event? Oh yeah. That's that, that makes a ton, ton of sense. And yeah, in terms of coach, I mean, that's, what's funny is that I think the reason the coach and anger angle that you're talking about fails so much. And, and I really am curious, like the lasso point, right. Is if you look at Bob Knight or coach K during a game, right. You, you see them standing and yelling and it's a great clip and Certainly when something's going wrong, I, I've definitely found I, I like to be stoic. Um, that's that's one of my go-tos. Being stoic when things are going wrong is really, really good at pissing people off. And in fact, in turn, if we want to get like real for a second, one of the messed up things is sometimes people get wrongfully accused of things like murder because they go into a state of shock and they're very apathetic. And they basically come across as self-incriminating because it's like this horrible thing just happened. And this person is talking to me like a robot. And the thought of this horrible thing just happened. How, why aren't you angry? 
um, is a very visceral. And so that I, I know we've talked that on the box score geeks a ton about athletes when, when stuff goes wrong and a player, you know, the Kobe line, I, uh, Michael Jordan would be better. I took that personally, right. Or the Kobe line, he shot in my face. I'm going to shoot in his face. We love that. And what we would hate is like one of my favorite counters to that. There's a Shane Battier. I don't know the exact quote, but a situation. So Kobe Bryant gets a contested either mid-range or three-point shot game winner against Shane Battier. And Shane Battier, after the fact, is like, I want him to take that shot. It's like, that shot goes in, shot goes in. Now, again, that's going to piss people off, right? Shane Battier coming at that, coming and saying, I lost. It happens. It's supposed to happen. Angers people. Whereas if Shane Battier comes in and say, you know, gets up in his face, let, let's say alternatively, Shane Battier rushes Kobe and foolishly fouls him early, and Kobe goes to the line. Kobe's great from the line, scores twice. They win the game by one. They're like, well, Shane Battier did what he could, but Kobe's Kobe. So it's it's a funny thing, and I mean that's why it's interesting on the Ted Lasso point of asking if he is a good coach. That was something we were talking pre-show, but just the idea of like the coach going, I want you to be the best player you can be by game time. And it's not any good for me to be angry. I really love that. And season one definitely focuses on Ted Lasso as the player developer. I want, I, I don't care if this team wins or loses. I'm curious about that, but I want these players to be the best players they can be. Right. So let's think about it in terms of a different domain. Let's say you're going in, let's say somebody's going in for open heart surgery, right? Or some complicated type of brain surgery. Or let's say you're on a plane and the pilots land in the plane in bad weather. Do you want a doctor or a pilot who's just had a huge argument with uh, her, her husband or his wife or um, has had a huge emotional something immediately before they do their job as a profession? Or do you want someone who comes into the operating room or is in the cockpit who's prepared and relaxed? And of course, again, the answer is self-obvious. We want people who are prepared and relaxed. When you make decisions in an emotional state, you often make fucked up decisions. And so, but we celebrate this idea of on the basketball court or the football field or whatever, probably even in chess, we celebrate this idea of like, you've got to be at this heightened emotional state and you've got to be angry and fearful and mad and, and ecstatic and everything. And as a coach later on, my goal was to just be even keeled, not myself, but the entire team. And so when we ended up winning um, a championship, professional championship, in Namibia, uh, after I'd had these experiences as a younger coach in my 20s, now in my late 30s, early 40s, I was a much better coach. The celebration that the entire team had when the buzzer went off was so, and this was uh, overall through the March of the playoffs, was the biggest upset in the history of this league, uh, the, the KBA in, in Namibia in Southern Africa. Our celebration when we won the championship, when the buzzer went off, was so low key that a friend of mine who came to the game to support me afterwards, she didn't really know much about basketball. Afterwards, she was like, you were so low key. I thought there was one more quarter left. Like that was it. We won, you know, a couple of players high-fived and hugged. Uh, one of my favorite players, Jack Benza went like this. He was on the court. He just went like oh, this. Oh, you got it. Yeah, I do that. 
just just to do one fist pump. We just won a championship, and we all just walked off the court, and that was it. And so, to me, that was one of the. No, uh, it sounds weird, but I'm proud of that, that. That that over the course of two years, the team had come to adopt this philosophy: of we don't get too high when we win, we don't get too low when we lose. That's that is fascinating. So, it's funny because I I've heard it framed in the same anger way before the 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 Islanders. So part of Wayne Gretzky's origin story, so to speak, in the NFL, that'd be interesting, NHL. <laughs> so uh, obviously the the uh, the Edmonton, Edmonton Oilers, I want to say, I almost mm-hmm. said Houston, but that's football. Edmonton Oilers, you know, Wayne Gretzky, they win four titles, but the dynasty they came up with before that was the New York Islanders. And Wayne Gretzky describes that they right before the Oilers started winning titles, they lo- they lose to the Islanders. And he says they walk by the Islanders, you know, that they're all feeling disheveled. The Oilers are, we lost. We've got the best player in the league. Wayne Gretzky is far and away the greatest individual athlete in his respective sport ever. No one else comes close. It's, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, in other sports like tennis, it's really weird that there's no de facto number one right now. It's really hard to say. But so, but his origin story, he walks by and he says the, the Islanders, they're just all like, calm and they're sitting in the locker room and they're quiet and they're like taping themselves up and his take was that they just they they their mindset they just were really focused and really driven so almost this anger mindset you know but your point of keeping like even keeled it is it is funny where it's going if you are going to be doing something that is highly emotional highly volatile lots of moving parts you have to keep yourself calm because you overreact and and we're talking these things um I brought a part of the game, the, the, the female high school documentary. Coach notes, he has this game that they lose a, a key playoff or a key championship game. I forget which, but he basically says they go into the timeout and he says like four times, he's like, now on your inbound play, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. And then in the interview, the, the documentarian does a great job of the interviews. You know, you're, you're talking to a high schooler, you tell them four times, do not do this. You put them out on the court. What's the first thing they do? But to your point, right? They're 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 they know what's at stake. They're so adrenaline. Their mind blanks. There's an interesting Malcolm Gladwell article about this on like freezing versus choking. I forget the distinction, but exactly that. Your brain goes away. You're 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 too high pressure. The coach said not to do this. Do I do that? You're saying the alternative is if you're calm and you're going, okay, this is inbound. Uh, your your Scott Williams thing pre when we were reading. You're saying he would like quote different parts of the triangle to himself. If before the inbound play, you're just even killed and you're like, okay, this is play 1B, run. So so let me let me ask you a question, Dre. So I know exactly the moment you're referencing in the movie Heart of the Game. And the coach draws up a play. I think what he says in the movie is, in the interview, the talking head interview, he says, I drew up A, B, and C, and they went out and ran X, Y, and Z. And then I called the timeout and they came out and I said, we said A, B, and C. And they looked at me like, yeah, but we're high schoolers. So <laughs> let me ask you a question. In that scenario, the coach is clear over and over again. This is what you are to do. This is what you are to do. This is what you are to do. And the players go out and they do not execute that. Who made the mistake, the coach or the players? Ooh, interesting. So I'm going to throw back to Dave. Dave always brings us up in teaching because he loves bashing teacher analysis, this exact thing you're talking about. So end of the semester, people complain about me as a teacher and it's a, it's a rote thing for college professors to go. Students nowadays, they complain about blah, blah, blah. And Dave Barry actually comes out very thing. He's like, listen, if your job is to explain things, 
and the people you're explaining to are complaining about how bad you are explaining them, at a certain point, you have to ask if it's you. There's lots of fun detraction. We can, but to your point here is if the coach is drawing up a play and you're saying ABC, right? It sounds very simple. And they do X, Y, Z. You have to ask what happened or how did we get to this? What you were saying, right? You don't want to be drawing up key plays. You get to this point in the season, you communicating quickly to your teammate. If you're a basketball coach, that has to be, you know, taking your shoes on and off. It can't be something with that level. And so I don't know. I mean, I would say he might've failed, but then where this gets really weird is, and this, I'm going to bring this back to teaching. It's really hard to grade how effective someone is at something without knowing how hard the thing is to do. A teacher might mm. seem like a bad teacher, but it's a hard subject. A coach might've done a horrible job at preparing his team for this scenario. But if it's a scenario, I mean, a, a key inbound pass in a playoff game, against a team with this type of player, which might be very rare. Your, your school may never see that type of player until they hit the playoffs because high school is way different than professional leagues. Okay, you didn't prepare us for this play. Why on earth would you have spent any practice time preparing for, you're gonna be facing three, six foot two women at this point, right? Cause it's like high school seniors on this inbound play with this scenario, it's, it's hard to know. So it's like, I would agree that it's on the coach but then why it's on the coach, that's a much harder problem. Right. So I think to go back to, to Dave Barry's point, this is, and this is, I grew to this mindset, both in coaching and teaching, which is if my players didn't execute something correctly, then I didn't teach it. That's the, the, the players executing something in the game on the court in the game is the final connection in the loop. If I taught it and they can't do it, then I didn't teach it. Same thing with teaching. If I'm teaching students something and they cannot execute what I taught them, then by definition, I did not teach it. Now, of course, also, if you're teaching a group of 30 students, you can, um, you know, my sort of uh, metric was, okay, now I'm going to give them a test. X percentage should make an A, X percentage should make a B, X percentage should make a C. You know, that that's going to demonstrate if you did, if you paid attention and you studied for this, you can make an A. If no one makes an A that of 30 students, that means I didn't teach it correctly because even the student who's working hard and studying can't succeed at this. I absolutely love that. Now, what I, what I love there that you just did is, is managing expectations because this is another case where I feel coaches, et cetera, and this might be the Ted Lasso problem. And so I do want to talk season two and if he's a good coach is I had a teacher that I was a TA under and here's the scenario. I'm curious your opinion on this. I know mine 100%. So teacher, it's the week before spring break. We're on Monday, Wednesday, Friday course. Wednesday before spring break, she gives a midterm. Friday before spring break. Friday before spring break, 75% of the class doesn't show. She's complaining to me in the teacher meeting. I can't believe these students didn't show. I had a lot of important material on that lecture and I'm going to have to redo it after spring break. I was biting my tongue at the time. I'm curious if you're on the same boat of thinking, what the hell were you thinking giving the midterm on Wednesday and the key material on a Friday the week before spring break? It's dumb as shit. Yeah. <laughs> what, 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 other, what other conclusion could you draw, right? Yeah, in the ideal fucking world, students are going to come and pay attention every time you have class. 
in the real world in which we all live, life happens. And anybody who's a veteran teacher knows, you know, like Thanksgiving break or, or before a holiday, half, half the kids aren't going to show up. I'm sure some other teachers at your university canceled their classes that week. So this expectation that, you know, everything's just going to go how I'm envisioning in my head, that's just dumb. But your opinion from an expert coach, Ted Lasso, good or bad coach? So I love that question. And that's sort of the initial question you and I were batting around by email. And actually, let's start here. So friend of your show, Chris Yeh, number one Lakers fan, I think. Um, what's, what's the uh, elevator pitch argument that he gives for why Ted Lasso is not a good coach? Well, I think some of it just comes around to some of the unpreparedness and not even knowing what he is coaching. So part of that is the premise of the show. For those that don't know, the premise of the show is Ted Lasso is a Div 2 football coach that won a title. He's kind of gone viral for dancing with his players. Um, and he is actually brought in as kind of a pseudo ringer, if that makes any sense. He is actually brought in to lose uh, by the the coach, by the owner of the um the Richmond football team in Britain. And, you know, she sells it as I want someone who knows how to win, but she really goes, I want a normal American to take over my ex-husband's football club to really tick him off. And right. he doesn't know the game. Um, and that's not, that's not his fault, right? If you, if you've been coaching football forever, you don't necessarily know soccer. So he doesn't know that. The argument Chris is making, right, is that he, he doesn't know what, he, what he's teaching these people. He doesn't know the game of football. And by season two, it, you know, he still seems to have gaps in his game. Uh, what we were talking about pre-show, I believe, is he tries to quote the infamous, or not infamous, it's famous, not infamous. Everybody loves it. The, the famous Hoosier quote. And, it, and it's, by the way, the, the, the director of cinematography, the director, they, it's, you can watch, someone has cut this on YouTube already. You can watch the Hoosier scene. You can watch the Ted Lasso scene. They line up. They know what they're doing in homage to uh, sports fans would know. It. But so he brings his club out into the middle of this of Wembley Stadium, and he's trying to give him the Hoosier pitch, which is like, you're feeling intimidated. This is a big stadium, but you'll find the dimensions of this, of this field are the exact same as ours back home. And Gene Hackman says that in Hoosiers. He's like, you're at the state title game. Don't look at the banners. Don't look at the fancy costumes. You are on, you know. I, I, I even wrote an article about the dimensions of a basketball court and I've already forgotten, but the, you know, the basketball rim is 10 foot off the ground, both places, right. in the same. And his, and his uh, assistant coaches are like, no, actually this, this field's a different size. It's, it's not the same. <laughs> and not only that, that gives a huge advantage to our opponent who has more speed than us. And so that that's the basic point is like, we, we are to the point where Ted Lasso has been coaching for over a year now here. And he is still making what you could ostensibly call rookie mistakes. And the discussion you and I were having pre-show is I've argued in some cases, this is actually an interesting teaching philosophy. As a teacher, I actually would go out of my way to not seem like a know-it-all. I would oftentimes, even if I, so here's the funny thing. If I didn't know the answer, I could say, I don't know. If I knew the answer, I would still go, I don't know. What do you think? Or what's your opinion? Or, hmm, I don't know about that. Or if someone disagreed with me, I would kind of sit there and I'd go, a, a common refrain for me when I was a teacher is I would sit, I'd kind of go, yeah, I buy that. If, if someone disagreed with me, but I gave it, you know, as a coach, teacher, manager, if you portray yourself as a perfectionist, as a paragon, the second you make a mistake, you've lost them. So I actually like the coaching philosophy, teaching philosophy of you're not perfect, ho-hum, 
But at the same time, as you'll notice what I'm saying there, I was prepared just because I said, I don't know. Sometimes I didn't know because it was a difficult question. It was a hard one. It wasn't something I'd prepared for. It's very common in lectures to go off of different paths. That's fine. But sometimes it was like, I'm not going to give it to you that easily, but then I'm going to know a lot. So you'll be able to tell. So with Ted Lasso, what I could see is going, how much is, is this an act and how much of it is him being unprepared? And in some cases, it does seem like unpreparedness because you go, who was that benefiting? When right. he acts like he doesn't know in front of the press, when he acts like he doesn't know in front of the referees or the opponents, perfect. You're putting on an act, right? These people are going to underestimate you. There's a great dart scene that I, I argued was an homage to the Princess Bride where he's like, I'm not left-handed, basically, right? Put, put, you know, he puts on an act there to, to you know, win a bet against uh, someone else at a game of darts. Brilliant. But when you're just talking to your team and you're supposed to be psyching them up and you're basically falling over yourself the week before a key match, is that where you should be at? Okay. I love this, Dre, because there's so much good stuff to dive into, right? So let's, let's do the micro and the macro. Ted Lasso shows his shocking ignorance of the basic dimensions of the football pitch that, that um, that's problematic, that you're supposed to be the leader and the expert. And you don't, it's like, it's maybe akin to a basketball coach not understanding that there's a two point range and a three point range, right? Like something so basic. Um, and if, if you were to say that in front of the team, they would be like, this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. So let's, let's dive into the micro and the macro. The micro is, okay, if you don't know something, how do you handle that? And if you don't know something basic, like the dimensions of the pitch you're playing on, is that acceptable? And I think you touch on it with your example of, of how you interacted with your students, which is the absolute worst thing you can do as a teacher, as a coach, as a leader, working with people, being part of a team, whatever. In your relationship, the worst thing you can do is be inauthentic. And especially when it comes to coaching, players can smell a, a fake a mile away. Um, so the number one thing is I think you have to be authentic. And if you don't know something and you try to front like you do know something, once that comes out, you know, then you definitely lost the team. So the, I think we talked about this in the first pod, like the, the domains of knowledge that a, a good coach needs is almost infinite and no one can be outstanding at all those different things from uh, emotional intelligence, dealing with people to statistical analysis, to in-game stuff, to how to run practice, to dealing with the media, to dealing with ownership, to dealing with blah, blah, blah. It's so many different things you have to excel at that no one can do all of them. So to me, the most important thing, one of the most important things a coach can do besides being authentic is to understand what she or he doesn't know and to fill in with somebody who does know. And so we see that often with Lasso and Coach Beard. Coach Beard fills in the sections of knowledge and the domains that Ted Lasso is not proficient at. Um, on the macro level, is Ted Lasso a good coach? So let's go back to your question or your thought about expectations, right? So the, the question then becomes, and this is the lesson I had to learn as a coach, and this is kind of the fundamental lesson of the book, the memoir I'm writing about coaching, which is what the fuck are you in this for, right? You can win games, 
That's what most young coaches want to do. Um, from a team perspective, a professional team, it's probably about making money. Um, from a, a team ownership slash team governor position, it's almost always about getting good publicity. Um, but any coach that's worth her salt, in my opinion, the goal is to help people be better people. That I'm coming in for this period of time to work with this group of people. At the end of the day, yes, I want you to be a better soccer player, a better basketball player, a better whatever. But ultimately, our time on this planet is limited. And I think in all of our relationships, the goal should be, I'm going to try to help you be a better person and you try to help me be a better person. So as coaches, I think it's our fundamental responsibility to try to help people who have been placed for whatever reason in our charge be better people. And Ted Lasso excels at that. Okay, here Dre and I get off on a little bit of a tangent talking about Kevin Durant and so forth. And Dre makes the good point that Ted Lasso is not at 100% in season two or season one, that he's dealing with the fallout from his marriage and so forth. And so then we pick it up there. Ted Lasso is not as good a coach in this season as he was in the first season. And the biggest mistake I can recall is he brings Jamie Tart back to the team, tells, I think, Sam that he's not going to. And then the next day or two, Jamie Tart's back on the team. And, and Ted never clears it with the team, never has a meeting with the team collectively or with the team leaders and say, this is what I'm thinking. And that just struck me as so wrong that Ted Lasso has this incredible emotional intelligence and ability to relate to his players would overlook something so simple, which is we're bringing back someone who was really divisive. We're thinking about bringing back someone who's really divisive. Let me take the temperature of the team and hopefully let's make a collective decision on that. So that's something where I think for the sake of drama, um, the writers created a scenario that the Ted Lasso in, in the first season would not have done, which is someone who really um, is connected to their team isn't going to make a huge decision without consulting the team. A lot of us caught season one and we binged it, right? I, I think I've watched it with my wife in three days. Season two is now week to week episodic. And I know um, Coach Beard uh, Hunt, the actual person who plays him, had said they thought the first three episodes were going to come out together. So as the writers, they thought episodes one through three were essentially episode one. And so I think, first off, it is really hard to match, right? You know, the, uh, the Bulls that win 72 games, they win a title the next season. They don't win 72 games, though. Um, in that regard, I think it's really hard to both match up with how good season one was, as well as we're watching it week to week and we haven't seen the whole story. So I'll reserve judgment for season one versus season two. I will say, unfortunately, episode one had to be a throwaway just to reset things. And that's always a rough state to be, right? Ted Lasso season one, they start us in the thick of the drama. We don't need much bet. We don't need, we, we're just given the premise. Episode two says, you ended here. We're now here. How do I get you there? And episode one, not in any regards from a storytelling narrative, from an acting, it wasn't a weak episode in any of that, but it was just like a very weak episode in terms of like, it had to get some stuff done. It was very boring and rote needed to be done for storytelling, but just doesn't unfortunately match up to any episode in season one. Yeah, what I love about season one, and I think my favorite scene from season one is when the owner, 
the team owner, I hate that term, but the team owner um, confesses her major league scam to Ted and says, you know, I sabotaged the season because I wanted to get back at Rupert. And immediately in the moment, Ted says, I forgive you. I mean, to me, that's, that's what season one was about. It's about forgiving people for being human. And what I love about season one is that Ted comes in as a cipher, but it's sort of like he's already seen all the problems that are happening in this organization, whether it's players like Tart and Kent, whether it's Higgins, whether it's the owner, whoever. And he just kind of works his magic to help people be better people, right? Back to my idea of what's your goal as a coach? And the number one goal as a human being walking this earth, I think, is to try to help people be better people and to try to be a better person yourself. And so the magic of season one for me was just watching this person slowly, sort of the gravity of his personality exerting itself and helping everybody be better people and forgiving people when they're not. Um, so that was the magic for me. Yeah, in season two, we still, a lot of it's resolving. Chris's thesis on this was it's fathers and sons or, or parents, right? You know, there's definitely the adult and child relationship, Roy with Phoebe, uh, Rebecca with Noel, her, her goddaughter. Um, we'll see where all of that ends up. I mean, I, I would agree. I don't think it's as strong as season one, but I'm still loving it. And like I said, I'll reserve judgment till the end. But also what's interesting is Ted Lasso was planned as a three season arc. And oh, they're comparing this to like um, Star Wars movies. And so like, this is Empire. And so season two has to end with, if it's going to follow kind of logical sports movie dumb. Here's the issue. So season one, right? They're just trying not to get relegated. That's the the goal. And they get relegated. It's the heartbreak. It's the team. You know, it's the Friday night lights. This team makes it all to the state championships. They lose. It ends in tears. But, you know, they learned a lesson. Dan Harmon's story circle 101. There you go. Season two, with where we're at now, they are a middling champion or championship. I always get the two confused. Uh, league team. Because since Roy Kent's come on, they are middle of the league. They're not going to get relegated. So they the only play they 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 can't go down in terms of win loss. They stay in place, narratively not that. So they they have to go up. They have to start winning. Okay. So they're going to end the season on a high, but they have to lose something. And that's very Star Wars, right? You know, they end, they kind of win, but they they've lost Harrison Ford. You know, they've lost Han Solo, they've lost Harrison Ford. Luke's lost his hand, right? They, 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 they won, but at what cost? So season two, I think has to end up, and I think that's the unfortunate thing is from an emotional beat, A to B to C in season one, you can't match it in season two because A, it starts down. You have to reset things and it's gonna start down. So it's this funny, it's gonna be interesting. And I, I don't know where it's going. I'm looking forward to it though. So that's my conversation with Dre about Ted Lasso. And we're gonna record another episode on the evening of Sunday, October 10th. And we'll drop that late Sunday or early Monday morning, recapping the entirety of Ted Lasso season two. You can find all of Dre's work at nerdnumbers.substack.com. That's nerdnumbers.substack.com. And on Twitter at nerdnumbers. You can find my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. If you like this podcast, please like, share, tweet, etc., etc. It all helps. Thank you and have a great day.